Good evening. I'm Mary Wood for the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education. I'm very pleased to be here with you in the War Memorial Opera House in San Francisco and to welcome you to this Meet the Artist interview this evening, Tuesday, April 29th, 2014. The San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education is directed by Charles Chip McNeil with adult education programming coordinated by Cecilia Beam. And as you know, the Center for Dance Education produces a wide variety of programming, including these pre-performance talks, uh, the programming for children, the very popular community matinees here in the Opera House, as well as our renowned dance in schools and communities. All of this is information you can go to the website, and I hope that you do frequently, sfballet.org. As many of you know, these programs are recorded for podcasting. You can go to the website and listen at some near future time if you want to catch one that you might have missed or review an interview or a lecture that you want to hear again. So again, welcome to those of you here and welcome to those who may be listening at a future time. This evening is the premiere of Program 7. And on this program, we have a world premiere by a choreographer who is new to the Western United States, Liam Scarlett, and we will see his piece, Hummingbird. Very exciting. We're looking forward to having it revealed to the San Francisco audience. And it's just a treat that this evening I'm going to be in conversation with scenic, and, scenic and costume designer John McFarlane. and lighting designer, David Finn. I would say John is familiar to San Francisco ballet audiences for our works that were done actually quite some time ago. One that we recall is um, Helgi Thomason's Nana's Lead, which we've seen in the last couple of years. Um, John is a very popular figure in the dance world and in the opera world, including the San Francisco Opera. His experience includes major large-scale productions for companies in Europe and the UK and Canada and our own Metropolitan Opera in New York. He was a recipient of an Olivier Award, which is the British version of, I believe, the Tonys is what we would say. The sort of similar. Theatrical awards for, um, and I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think your production of Hansel and Gretel, which was done at. Uh, Started life in um, Welsh National Opera. Right. And finally arrived in San Francisco. Right. I don't know when actually. San Francisco? Yes. Oh, wow. It, yeah. Fantastic. Yes. Well, I know at the Met. It's, yes, the Met, um, the, the, the San Francisco version uh, was the original, was the original <laughs> version. And the Met have theirs, but they have their own one, which we made a bit larger. Marvelous. So, this is a designer that we're familiar with. And then, um, our other collaborative guest, um, David Finn, began his career at the age of 16, working, working as a puppeteer. No, the, I actually started age eight in my father's oh, theater. Okay. <laughs> Um, 
as the grip in my father's theater. I, w I worked for Bert Hillstrom, who was the puppeteer for Kukla, Fran, and Ali. Um, and I toured with him a few times and got my chops that way. And that was, it's a film term for somebody who hauls things around the stage or around the film set. And my father gave me that as my first job, plus $25 for the summer. Steve. <laughs> well, other than that, David is no stranger to San Francisco ballet audiences, having designed any number of our productions, um, seen this very year, uh, I think, Firebird, um, and... Many more. I've done many, many, maybe many. a dozen pieces here, yes. And between these two artists, they have collaborated for, I believe you said, 20-plus years. We, we had to come up with a figure when we were asked to do this. And we have worked out it is about 20, 20 collaborations, of ma mainly major operas, big operas, but also ballet. Over the last 25 years, actually. Is it 20? Well, 1989, 25 years, 20 pieces. 25 years. Math is not necessarily a strong point for artists. <laughs> Can't you tell? <laughs> so um, we just could go on and on. But what we want to hear from the two of you is what you, frankly, bring to the theater in your long experience. And then, of course, we want to hear a little bit about this evening's premiere, Hummingbird, and your collaborations with Liam Scarlett. So um, John, if you would start. Um, you have been in theater from a very early time, and I also know you to be an exhibiting artist. Um, which came first, art or theater? Impossible question. Um, I can date doing my first little model theaters at age six, because I remember my father cutting open little matchboxes and making a proscenium arch and me making tiny little sets. And he sadly passed away when I was seven years old, so I can, I have to be able to date that. And as far as I know, it's always, it's never been a question that I wasn't going to do theatre design and paint, and I'm very fortunate that's what I do. But I, I can't now, they, they've, they've become so entwined um, that my work, you'll see tonight, the, the, is, a, is a piece of painting. Most of the actual paintings you see on the stage, I also do. So when people say to you, well, aren't you going to do more of your own paintings? I try and explain, I've just done one, 22 meters by 18. I, I see, these are very much part of my work as well as the exhibiting work. And I think over the years, um, it's, it's the, the sort of, if I have a trademark, it is explaining the, the opera or the ballet with big painted images and mixing it with architecture and, of course, the three-dimensional elements of the stage. Um, but how I separate, I, t I try occasionally to separate, have an exhibition that has nothing to do with theatre in the paintings, and somehow the images that I come up with on stage always kind of creep in. So I can't separate them. And it's too late to change now. So. You also design costumes. Yes, I do. I, I'm, it's, I think there's only two occasions in my working life that I haven't done the sets and costumes. One was War and Peace at the Bastille in Paris. 
because there are 13 full-stage Bastille-sized sets and there are 750 costumes. So to, <laughs> it's, not, it's really not possible. And, I, and on a, um, I've just done Rosalka in Lyric Opera, Chicago, and because of the calendar, partly preparing this piece and an exhibition of paintings, I didn't do the costumes for that. But these are really the only two occasions. They, they naturally follow on as you're designing the sets. It just seems like a very wide range of skill that will, it will take to visualize what's going to go on a performer as well as around I think, it, I think it seems very wide viewing it from the outside. But um, when you're working on a model, you start absolutely to know what color somebody's going to be wearing if they you know, as the model takes shape and you, you see it becoming a real space. Of course, you want to know that somebody in black or yellow or something is going to walk through that door. And, if, and I've never been able to deal with the fact that I would work with a costume designer who would say, well, I see it in pink and blue, and a, and a designer. So it, it's just something that I think it sounds like an enormous, uh, enormous work, and it is. But they all come at different stages, you know, the, the, the operas or the ballets, especially if they're large, are conceived two years ahead. The models go in now a year and a half ahead. The work in the workshops can sometimes span a whole year. And then the last six months is almost totally only costume. Um, it's, you know, the prototyping, the first fittings, the second fittings uh, to the final stage. And I can say that this style of designer is very rare. I work with a lot of directors and designers. And I don't think I've ever met anyone like John who really comes forward with the entire picture. It's so cohesive from the moment you start. It's, and it's so clear what the direction is. It just makes the work easier and, and more fluid. Speaking of your work, um, I'm curious to know how you entered the world of theatrical lighting. Lighting doesn't seem to me as though the kind of thing you would have thought of when you were six, but I could be wrong. I, uh, I truly just started hanging around the lighting guys in my father's theater, and that's how I, they made me mm. haul cable and, and do all that kind of thing. And uh, I spent 10 summers there, so it was a, it was a big, big thing for me. And then I rocketed, if you rocket forward, I met um, a woman named Jennifer Tipton in, in New York and, and became her assistant. And that's actually how I met John. I was sent over to uh, Covent Garden to um, relight uh, Giselle for the Royal Ballet. And John was the designer. And we met there and hit it off. And uh, he, in turn, asked me to do the Nutcracker for the Birmingham Royal Ballet um, mm -hmm. about two years later. And we went on from there. I'm, um, lighting is, is something that I think many of us in the audience find just magical. Um, and because I've been around it long enough, I know that lighting can make all the difference. How does that collaboration work? At what point does one of you say, here, this needs this, or could I have that? Or, the, the, the collaboration, of course, starts with a director or a choreographer asking you to design a, a production. 
Um, so essentially, the first ideas are in, in very close session with your collaborator, be the director or choreographer. Um, as soon as the ideas take shape and they're in a sort of three-dimensional form, um, as I've said, I, I do a lot of big paintings, I do a lot of translucent, one of which you'll see tonight, work and transparent work on stage. So as soon as I feel that's coming along, and normally by that time I've said, well, is it okay if I work with David or Jennifer? I really only now work with either Jennifer Tipton or David Finn. And this is a fantastic place to be because already I'm not very far into the work with the director. I'm already thinking David and I could do this or this is something I've got to not go further with till I talk with David. Um, and I find, because we've done so many collaborations, and he's very easy to talk to, and we get on very well, and we have a very, essentially, we have a very, very good time together when we do work together, this makes the job wonderfully, wonderfully easy, that there is a sort of trust now, and, and David is, uh, is also um, absolutely free to say to me, I can't get any sodding light through that because you've put too much paint on it. Can you scrape some off and then I can get some? Um, and, you know, I can yell for more backlight because I want to see one little bit up on the left-hand corner. So it's, it's a very give and take, but he comes in now earlier and earlier to the process. The lighting is very hard to talk about. It's very, very am amorphous uh, thing. And so... Um, it really is an intuitive relationship that we have. I think we found our language early when I did Giselle. I came from the school sort of of Jenny Tipton and he understood, he knows that school. And there is, a, there is a language of what we see on stage that we can just, in a matter of a few words. Yeah, you have to have a similar aesthetic. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that's true of directors you work with, obviously, but absolutely of lighting designers because I, unfortunately, it only happened twice to me where a lighting designer absolutely massacred a production. And there was nothing you could do to stop it. Because, I mean, in the same way that, well, David actually knows any technical jargon on my side of the tracks, but for me to know the technical jargon on his side is almost impossible. So if, if a lighting designer is going out of control, it's actually very hard to know how they're going out of control and stop it. So it's one of the essentials to have in place, is having just knowing that you're safe. I also tend, uh, it happened on this piece, I tend to be sort of a nervous Nelly about a few things. And I, I got very concerned about what you're going to see tonight oh, that's covering the stage. And I, I made, in turn, made John <laughs> very nervous, even though I think he knew in his heart and soul that it was going to be fantastic. No, he made me very nervous. <laughs> And I really did. I, we, we went through heartache on this one, and it looks incredibly simple, this piece, but it is probably one of the hardest pieces, the biggest challenges I've had in a and long risk. time. Yeah, and it's a, big, a huge risk, this piece. It, the, the, the scenery essentially covers, you know, 60 to 70 percent of the lighting rig, so it's just taken out of, taken out of use right there. You've given us, um, somebody looks like they're ready to ask a question. Give us a couple more minutes and we'll get to you. Um, you've, you've offered us a segue into talking about the piece tonight, um, which is entitled Hummingbird, which is kind of 
fascinating in its own way. Um, and I would invite you to say a word or two about inviting the choreographer into this collaboration. And I wonder if you could, one of you, um, offer how you, the three of you, work together to create what becomes this theatrical whole. Um, um, almost every choreographer making a world creation from nothing wants one thing, and I understand why. What they want is dancers to appear on the stage from nowhere and to disappear. And when they're done dancing, and you have things like wings, and you have, you know. So, but it's always the first, almost always the first thing with a new work. You say, well, what do you want? And the choreographer says, well, I really want them to come from nowhere. And the only person I know who really solved that was Jennifer Tipton. In, in, in Twyla's Tharp, where they filled the stage with smoke and put tractor lamps through the smoke, and the dancers literally appear from nowhere on the stage. And the first piece that Liam and I did, we, we achieved it by a lot of black moving screens with slashes in them, and the dancers could walk back and suddenly disappear. It came up again with this piece, and I was desperate to try and find a way that the dancers could come down or onto the stage and apparently come from nowhere. And I came up, and I don't know, and what I'm trying to say is all these things don't come from inspiration. They come from a sheer practicality of how to solve something that somebody wants and your desire to come up with the goods. And that's when I came up with this huge kind of canopy over the whole stage that would almost make a corridor doing that so the dancer, that canopy could move down or up and it could just slowly fall and mask dancers as they left the stage. To be frank, I never really thought it would work <laughs> as well as it, I think it has. But to be compounded with David for two months while we were doing Rosalka in Chicago, saying to me, you know, John, I'm not sure this is going to work, <laughs> is, is really kind of hard to <laughs> So, but, but th th that's where it came from. It's not, it's not a kind of, the, the canopy doesn't mean anything, and I don't really think, the piece is an abstract piece, and I think it should be looked at like an abstract painting that's moving and being still when it needs to be. And I had to ask why the piece was called Hummingbird, because um, I was getting a hard time from everybody here saying, when is he going to come up with the title? And I'm going, it's not my job. Ask Liam. And he said, we try, and he never replies. And Liam has explained it to me why it's Hummingbird, and it still doesn't really make an awful lot of sense. <laughs> OK. Is that anything you want to share, or shall we just let it come to us as we watch the piece? Well, should we, I mean, he talks about the, the, the speed of the movement of the feet in the, in the piece, and I think that's... Yeah, he, was, he, he did say that the thing he loved about hummingbirds is, of course, they have, what is it, 100 beats to their wings in one second. It's, it's an amazing statistic. Um, and they can, they can be beating their wings at that speed and standing still, and they can fly backwards. And then rather lamely at the end he said, and your canopy <laughs> is, is almost like a hummingbird going into a flower. And I went, okay. 
but I get the speed under going backwards. <laughs> That's all. I know some of our audience is dying to ask you some questions. For those of you who may have come in late, we're in conversation with the scenic and costume designer John McFarland and lighting designer David Finn for tonight's premiere, Hummingbird. Um, so if you would let me know if you have a question, this is your chance to ask your question, and I'll repeat it so we can get it out over the mic. Why it was the question is why is designing and lighting this so challenging? It's because it no, it's a good, it's a very good question actually. It's because of the translucency that covers the stage, actually covers most of the overhead lighting rig. So the canopy, I had two concerns. One was making sure the canopy would take the light in a proper way, and that had to do with thickness of paint, but once I knew that John was going to paint it himself, it, my fears were relieved. But uh, it's, it's all also to do with the fact that once I make that canopy look good, I then have to make the people look good without 60-70% of the lighting rig that's, that San Francisco Ballet has. So that, I was like, on this enormous stage with this huge theater, how do I make them stand out with, the, with that canopy there? And that was a huge challenge here. Um, I think we resolved both. Yes, I mean, it's a, the, the canopy is a material I love to paint on. And it's, a, it's, a, it's like a tracing paper, but it's made of polyester, so it's plastic. But the wonderful thing about it is because it has no weave in it as a cloth would, if you hung it the way we've hung this piece, a cloth would automatically, by its sheer weight, pull in in the middle and you would have sags and all things. It doesn't do that. But we've, we did a big production of Cinderella for the Birmingham Royal Belly about three years ago. And again, I used a lot of it for all the night sky stuff because it's... It's the most, well, you, I hope you'll agree, it takes light fantastically and, and the paint floats on it rather than being in the weave. So it, it was, but, but we've been concerned that this, the manufacturers have changed the properties. Yeah, it's gone back and forth and so I had a horrible time on Cinderella and I don't know if it was the fabric or the, the, the plastic the way it was made or I don't know if it was how I lit it, but I just, I couldn't hmm. get the light to focus properly. So here I was concerned I was going to have the same problem because it's, it's exactly the same material and we didn't have it for some reason. Some, so we... And I was scared that well, obviously the painters who are wonderful here and painted the, the back of the floor at the back of the stage had never painted on it. So I, I came down in January and painted it over about five days. But also to make sure that when we arrived to do this production week, there would, there would be enough translucency for all the lamp, lamps to come through it. Oh, and they amazing. have, so it's okay. Let's try a question over here, and there's one back there. Can you speak up quite loudly? Here the question at is, the, can you repeat yes, the question? The, the question is, do we use traditional lighting or are we using LED now? Well, we use LED a lot in my business these days. Um, but it is a new technology and it's expensive and we have to be able to afford it. Here, here for this piece, um, we originally 
were told that the lighting bridges, uh, because of certain restrictions on the system, would not be able to go out any further than they typically play them for the rep rest of the repertory. That made me very nervous because I couldn't, above the canopy, I couldn't pull the rig out to get, to get distance. So I hired in moving lights. Um, uh, from they, they got them from LA and they're just wash moving lights, they're modern technology. So it's not LED, it's HMI technology, but it's an intelligent light that can change color and I can control it from the board, I don't have to focus it on stage. So we did bring in a lot of those, but when, then they said they could move the bridges out, so we reduced that. But, so the answer to the question, no LED, but there is technology brought in for this piece to, to do it properly. Fascinating. Okay, let's go to, um, let's let somebody else here, yeah. Oh, what is um, the, the terminology, director, just choreographer? I would say a director is for opera or straight theater, and a choreographer is choreographing. No, no. Um, somebody over here, I thought I saw. All right, go ahead. Oh, the question is about the music and the score. So where are you with that? Absolutely huge. It's, it's actually the prime reason I don't do any straight theater. And by that I mean plays. Because um, I think a lot of people have the same problem, that is reading a script on your own. Um, and then you hear an actor or an actress reading it, and it's transformed. But at the point you're having to start really thinking about the piece, um, I really only get going if I have a score. I am a, a, a very poor and amateur musician. I have a piano and I play the piano. So I read music and I listen to music all, a lot. But it, it's the only thing that starts to get ideas going, uh, especially um, with, of course, with a huge ballet or a, a big opera, you, 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 and that has, and there's lots and lots of interludes in these pieces where it's over to the, the designer to solve the problem. You know, Nutcracker, the growing of the tree, midnight if it's Cinderella. You know, well, there are no singers, or nothing's happening except set changes. So yes, it's it's hundred percent. The only way I can work. Fantastic. There's time for one more question, and I'm going to go back to here. You had, yeah. Do you ever go up into different parts of the auditorium to measure what is successful? Not concern those who might be stuck in the balcony tonight. We don't come down to standing here on this side. Oh, this is a great question. Can you reframe the question, John, that he asked? Yes, absolutely. So the, the two problems are heights in houses and sight lines from the side. This is actually a very good house for sight lines. Uh, the worst are the horseshoe, like Covent Garden, or it's actually not bad, but the, that version of design of an opera house. There, there is a point, though, we have a moment in this where there's one person at the back of the stage and he stands there for about half a minute. Now, he has seen till half the, the, not the first one, but the second row here, I don't know what you call it. But he won't be seen from away up at the top. But he's not performing, he's literally standing there and then he walks onto the stage. And, and already today Helgi was concerned about that. 
But yes, in the, the, one of the major things that is our job, to, well, my job, because David, by the force of his job, is at the tech desk, because that's where all the lighting consoles and equipment are. So my job is to, during all these rehearsals, race round <laughs> the, the opera house and up to. And yes, of course, you would adjust things. You know, but you, you know, one of the things that happens in the very early technical stages of doing a large production is that you have immaculate, amazing sheets and sheets and sheets of drawings, and all of them have sight line lines in them, what you see from the furthest corner seat, what you see from the top one. So essentially that has to, be, that you, you refer to that right through the design process. I wish we had time for more questions. This has been absolutely fascinating. I want to say thank you so much to John McFarland and to David Finn, who designed this evening's premiere of Hummingbird. I hope that some of you will be able to come tomorrow at 6 p.m. The Points of View program will be a discussion about choreography, and Liam Scarlett will be part of the discussion. So you'll want to round out the experience by coming at 6 p.m. tomorrow night. It's free and open to the public. You don't have to be ticketed. With that, I'm going to say thank you very much and look forward to this evening's performance. Thank you. Thank you.